Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. We're going to be taking a look at Judgment Day number 2 by Kieran Gillen, Valeria Skeety, Marte Gracia, and Clayton Cowles. We're also going to be taking a look at Legion of X number 4 by Cy Spurrier and an incredible creative team of artists. But... First up, you know, TK, we have a couple of unusual projects here on the network, whether it's MC2 over in XI4PAU or it's this one, Punisher. We also have Ghost Rider going in the background. And man, Punisher is going some really interesting places. It is. And I mean, the thing to keep in mind is the initial project wasn't so much a project as it was like you encouraging me to get into Daredevil and that turning into coverage of some Daredevil stuff and Devil's Reign and this revelation that Elektra and Daredevil were going to finally form the fist to combat the hand while we found out that the hand was getting taken over by Frank, which felt really relevant to some mythological Daredevil stuff. Meanwhile, we're seeing all this interesting stuff happen with Elektra. And this is just like yet another corner of the Marvel Universe that is really bubbling up and that it has felt like it makes sense to cover the stuff that feels associated with it because it feels like it's relevant on a broader scale than you might think right now just watching these books develop. And that means we're going to be taking a look at Punisher number five by Jason Aaron, Jesus Seiss, Paul Azaceda, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And this book is really challenging a lot of things that people think about Punisher, but I kind of challenge who is the Punisher other than a sort of lost exaggeration of hyperviolence? And to wit, I kind of want to point to something that I noticed earlier today when I was getting my research together for this episode. Something that we're trying to do a little bit more on the show is take a look at multiple works at once to sort of compare and contrast the things that come together to build the Marvel Universe. Not to, you know, Avengers Arena sort of pit any creators against each other, but rather to highlight the connection tissue of the Marvel Universe. And in the process of looking information up and kind of getting together some numbers to see if there was anything worth comparing to this issue, there are no Daredevil or Punisher or Elektra stories on Marvel Unlimited in the Infinite Comics line. Gosh, now that you say it. <laughs> now that I say it, it's kind of hard to miss, right? Yeah. Yep. And it makes me wonder, who is the Punisher? And why would, you know, this absence of a series and a line of comics indicate who who is this character? Well, not only do the Infinity Comics often include a who is story, which like sets up who the character is, but we have had a number of, albeit terrific, kind of silly one-offs. There's been a bunch of Iceman one-offs, and I am here for queer representation. I am here for mutants having an Omega moment, but, you know, give me gays. Don't give me all white gays. You know, Hawkeye has a story. We've seen reprints and representations of classic stories. Spider-Man's had a fairy tale series. We've 
seen multiple incredible, and every one of them should be praised, uh, interpretations of Ms. Marvel and Miss America. We have Alligator Loki by the genius creative team of Alyssa Wong and Bob Quinn. And, you know, two seconds, Alyssa Wong, Deadpool, I could not have been more excited. Yeah, I completely agree. It was a little out of left field, not in a bad way, just like, you know, we had asked them when they were on the show if they were ever going to touch the X line, and they said, stay tuned for news. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, what could it be? We saw the announcement of Teeny Howard's Exterminators book, and that got me thinking, oh, I wonder if Alyssa Wong is going to be doing something like that. Never would have thought about Deadpool, but as soon as it was announced, and then they talked about on Instagram how it's really going to have a solid body horror component, I was like, oh, this is actually perfect. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited. I'm really glad to see that it's Martin Coccolo who had a story in Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood. Yep. But to any of the books that I've said we were going to talk about, the lack of Punisher Infinity Comics and Daredevil Infinity Comics and the fact that these two books are playing at parallel narratives. No one knows who's coming out the other side of this big hand fist, you know, punch him up. So it leaves me wondering, are they purposely not doing anything with Daredevil or Punisher right now in the comics while they prepare whatever's coming next for the cultural iteration of these characters. You have two choices with Punisher. You can divorce him from law enforcement or you can divorce him from extremeness, but we already have kind of an ACAB world at all times. We don't really need an ACAP world. Well, I guess it would be all Punishers are bastards. So it would be a PAB world. You know what I mean? I have some real interest now that I've seen that there's no map for the Punisher running around Marvel Comics outside of this book. I'm also interested about brand identity when it comes to the Infinity Comics and how Punisher might fit into that. I have yet to see an Infinity Comic that is as dark and serious. Somebody can probably point to one I'm not thinking of that is those things, but for Frank is such a hot button property right now that I think even the appearance of cavalierness that some people have in terms of Infinity Comics aren't as important might lead some people to feel like they just throw the Punisher into stuff and the associations are so bad that it's almost offensive to be casual about the use of the property. I guess I am surprised in contrast that there hasn't been anything Daredevil because Daredevil can really slot into anything. Daredevil can tell a funny one-off quick story a humorous story. Daredevil is a great character for a writer that you wouldn't normally think to put on Daredevil to do just a four-issue kind of mini-arc, not to mention his motion through the city and the way that he sees things all lend themselves to the vertical nature of an Infinity comic. So I am surprised by Daredevil. I can also see reasons why that wouldn't come up, but the Punisher, I almost feel like until we really figure out how to extricate the comic book idea of the Punisher from what we see the symbols of the Punisher co-opted for in the real world. I imagine the Infinity line is probably not the best place for him. It really is a stark contrast to any number of times throughout history where Punisher has had multiple books running simultaneously. It's not always, you know, the early 90s, three titles concurrently, sometimes doing weekly events with crossovers. Certainly not. Where, you know, he also had one-shots and, you know, appearances in Marvel Comics Presents and was just running around 
every single fucking title with that stupid giant gun, you know? But we find ourselves in an era where, thanks to things like the long-term success of Punisher Max by Garth Ennis, which was actually born of Garth Ennis's Welcome Back Frank and subsequent 37-issue run. I believe Garth misses like 12 issues of that run. And then Jason Aaron would ultimately take over Punisher Max, and now we see Jason Aaron here on Punisher. Jason Aaron has done a real who's who world tour of everything dark and gritty and grimy and ugly about the Marvel Universe, and it's always interesting to me that Jason Aaron, a guy whose stories are ultimately kind of all about the power of love, like really, is so frequently tied to these ugliness characters, and I expect him to come onto a title and say, all right, here's Punisher, here's what makes Frank ugly, let's exploit it on every page. What's fascinating is Frank seems to be the only person not interested in the further exploitation of his own ugliness. Frequently in Punisher runs, Frank is like, cut me open, I'm festering with bugs. But like, here, Frank wants to be a good guy, sort of, almost, like he thought he was taking this job to change the world. And I think on top of that, the the fact that they've got his wife, that she's resurrected and the possibility of the kids are there, it is really tragic and understandable, but it also immediately sullies any idea that his motivations are purely, oh, I finally have the right tool to truly destroy evil. Even if the tool itself is evil, if I use it, I can get rid of everything else and then get rid of this and walk away. No, he's being tempted and he played directly into it. And it is selfish. As tragic as it is that his wife and family were killed, they were, and there's always a cost to resurrection. With the hand, you know the cost is not great, and he's taking this option because he wants them back, not because it is the right thing to do, not because it combats evil anyway. And so right out of the gate, any purity to the use of this awful tool is really dull because of the temptation. Punisher is so certain that his moral code is correct, and is just committing atrocities in front of people who are his peers and have their own complex moral codes that aren't always correct but never would go anywhere to the disgusting lengths that Frank goes to and they're sitting there screaming everybody's got pain but Frank is just so certain that because he experienced this tragedy that just broke him so totally everything is justified because nobody else should have to go through that thing that he went through even though so many people go through so many other things that he can't even fathom. And speaking of unfathomable horrors, Uh, yes. I'm so excited to get into this issue. I must have gasped 15 times reading it. The battle between Frank and the Priestess that sets this issue going is so good. It's so good. It is so beautifully rendered. I honestly can't say that I was so shocked that this turned out to be the case. She either is or can turn into this grotesque, Cthulhu-esque monster. Really, in the grand scheme of things, not a huge surprise. What really gives it that only in comic books shock value moment is how mysterious the body of this creature still is because it's wrapped up in the cloth and you see things that are tentacular but you know this is not just a squid monster you see something like a beak but it's all moving and shifting and wrapped in cloth and Frank is fighting it so you never get a beat on exactly what this is and it's sort of similar to some of the stuff I talk about in Ghost Rider when it comes to horror but comics are tough sells when it comes to horror because it's just you can't do jump scares in comic books moments like this are what comics can 
give you that no other medium really can. And this is just such a perfect moment of it. If I have any note, it's that there is no point that I could find a reference to her title or her name at any point in that whole exchange. Obviously, if it's part five of however many, I don't need it to be first issue accessible to every reader that comes into it. That's not necessarily the concern, but there is something about the fact that we're living in a who the fuck knows when the book is coming out kind of world. And I could use a little refresh. You know, I don't mind going back and rereading the previous issue every time. I can live with that. But, and you know, I'm not calling for the age of, you know, there has to be a data sheet at the front of every book. Although look how well X-Men is doing with using those two pages to create those beautiful info pages. There just could have been a little something that wasn't that huge body of prose that starts off the previously page. Yeah, and maybe is not as necessary as they thought. This is still a pretty simple concept. And the only thing we've gotten to is Frank is now X Exiting, trying to get out with his wife. And I think they gave a lot of details as to why and stuff that I don't think are good for a preview page. I think in this case, it just didn't need that much information. Or yeah, render it in a different way. Give us something like a data page, prayers to the beast or something like that. Letters from somebody within the hand about what's going on. But yeah, that was this pretty extensive background information. And, you know, I've lived in New Jersey and Florida. I know that there is an enormous difference between a forest and a jungle. But I do think that there is something very significant to the visual of Frank going into a forest to escape. Number one, it does conjure visuals of the sorts of jungle warfare settings that were either horribly offensively a real nation or sort of like, oh yeah, he's going to Tanqueray City in North Whiskeyonia. And, you know, always really kind of offensive in that regard. And then to contrast it with the idea of the forest, the idea of the park, Central Park, where, you know, in many iterations, he lost his family. There is something about taking the two wars, the two battlefields that Frank is forever trapped in and contrasting them as the thing trapping him from making his escape back to his family. It's almost as if to say, because he can't leave the wars behind, he'll never truly be able to have his family back. Yeah, it's not that he can't escape the hand. He's not trapped in that fortress. It's that even if he were to get out with everything he needed intact, he's not able to do the work to get out into the outer world. He can't see the forest for the trees, if you will. Like, he is trapped not by the things that he thinks are trapping him or the things that he has to escape. Even if he manages to figure out how to get out of those things, he still has so much inside himself that is broken to confront, that is holding him back. And I think, yeah, you are absolutely right. That is what the forest represents. It's so weird that we live in such an incredible age of art for comics because I find myself always really aware when the art doesn't work well, especially when you're merging two artists together to try and make sure that nobody falls behind on these insane deadlines. That absolutely, like, let me just say, no artist should be expected to produce art at the rate at which comics expects the books to keep up. The nature of the internet age and fandom and 
and the speed at which we sort of season binge a comic now. You know, that's part of why I'm so shocked that there isn't more Punisher content and Daredevil content, because Marvel uses those things to help you not notice when the book doesn't come out for six weeks, eight weeks, when there's only one title on a hot property. There's not as much lead time on a digital book because digital books don't need the physical printing locked into the schedule. They don't need the foresight on, you know, scheduling out. They actually think about how many books they're sending to the printer each week. And they try to supposedly not overload one week with too many of one kind of title, etc. So when I say that books need multiple artists now, I'm not saying that no artist can make all of these deadlines, but there really is a point at which we're breaking these artists' ability to create something beautiful. And I think Punisher, having the foresight to have two artists, both of whom I would pay an extra dollar each month to have work from. Like, I would pay $4.99 for a book from either of these artists with Jason Aaron. And I feel as though finding a way to homogenize them into a single title speaks volumes about a writer's ability to dial into and become the support function for artists. It really is a testament to everybody working on this. Because I think Aaron could tell this story without the background and we wouldn't say, "Eh, but you know what I wish it had were flashbacks to when Frank was a child. But the way that he has written it, I don't ever get to these and go, oh, this again. On top of the fact that they're just beautifully rendered, like such a great art style, they do feel really important to understanding what's going on here. And not just in that way of like, no, like if you think about his childhood traumas, it makes you understand everything more in the way of like there actually might be something mystical going on which is one thing but also monsters aren't just built in one moment it is a process over time there are failures over time and this is not a way to justify why frank is this is to show you why it's even more complicated than just bad thing happened to guy and now he is vigilante when you said you know he's kind of trapped by his past and he'll never get out from under it one of the things that i think makes these backup stories necessary is that there really is no telling this story without understanding who these people are as a result of where they're from, as a result of what made them. And that's actually just kind of a personal note. Paul Azaceda is really well known for doing his stunning inks on Incorruptible, which is a partner title to Irredeemable, Irredeemable, by Mark Wade and Peter Krause. And Mark Wade, of course, being a guy who needs no introduction on this show, but I do bring up his Daredevil run a lot. And anybody who's been following it, the irredeemable, uncorruptible, and somehow they are sneaking in digital only partner title from Thrillbent, Insufferable. I don't, you know, I love that this is included because I've always been like, oh, there's no reprint of Insufferable. Anyway, super cool. If you do want to check it out, I believe you can currently order copies if you want to check out like a really great independent comic that explores themes like what happens when morality for superheroes becomes a really tense question for the whole universe. So definitely worth the look. But yeah, I think that everything about Paul Azaceda's art on this title is fucking bangers. And that first page of the flashback where Principal Jackdaw sucks eggs. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I, on this show, have long maintained that the character of Jackdaw from Captain Britain is the worst fictional character in the entire Marvel Universe. Like, famously, I bring this up. 
Don't care if it's not the reference. It is in my fucking heart. There's also the reference to God Bless the Beast. But there's even the unbelievable touch of Jen Sanders is a mutie. Like, there's something so... Even the backgrounds are filled with hate. And that's kind of the point of these of these flashbacks, isn't it? The background has always been filled with hate. And Frank fits into and blends into it. It is not like, how can he escape this? Right from the first story, he is embracing it and falling into it and becoming a part of it and going down a path of increasingly amping up his own engagement with hatred. I do want to dial into something that I did not think of, but through our discussions came kind of clear. So first of all, this is the coolest hockey has looked in a comic book since Jeff Lemire decided to take me into the Canadian wilderness and force me to confront my feelings about toxic masculinity in a beautiful, idyllic setting. Let me just be clear. Number one. Number two, all of the devil's stuff. I can't help but think that my precious DD is a little bit represented here. But um, as much as I love getting to know Maria, there is something about Stedman Sternberger where he does come off with some very caricaturish elements. It's a tough one. I raise this red flag as a person who was raised Jewish who pays attention to a lot of Jewish stereotypes that appear in media. This is one that I really would give the benefit of the doubt and if somebody said, nope, didn't even think about it at all, I would not press the issue. I guess I'm more surprised that this wasn't an editorial or a sensitivity read moment. It's just the last name, his status as kind of a nerd in school, and then it just a little bit is the rendering of the nose, which I can believe is just an artistic thing and has to do with how the glasses sit on his head and how you do facial features. I really don't want to be that guy that is like, no, anytime I see something, it is definitely problematic. But it was a red flag moment in seeing this. The fact that Frank is in school in New York where it really would not be uncommon to see a nerdy Jewish person and get bullied. It's not even necessarily an idea that I have a problem with. It's just how you might approach it artistically and in writing the story. None of us are perfect, but it is, you know, you know, when you are from a group, you can sometimes notice these things and you can have this kind of reaction of being like, huh, I clocked that. And I think it's important that we talk about this stuff. I'm not ascribing any bad intention, but I noticed it. If you noticed it too, you are not alone. And hopefully everybody's just paying attention and doing their best. I completely agree. I don't believe there was any ill intent here, where I do think there was definite intent. Frank's like, I'm pregnant. And Maria's like, well, I joined the Marines. And (laughs) I think that that is such an important moment for us to see, because to men of a certain age, there really was a sort of, you come of age one way or another. And we get a sense that Frank was never a child. And then we see him forced further into manhood in conventional ways after he's already kind of become like a a pretty horrible young human. I don't know. There is something really important about seeing this moment, even if the moment itself isn't something I care about. I wouldn't even say I don't care about the moments. I just, they feel so incredibly correct. And it feels like the definitive idea that this started for Frank well before Maria needs to be done justice. We need to see his, the story of him as, yeah, a violent young human. It's tough to even say a child. I mean, you see him, you know, he literally 
clearly is a young boy, but I think part of the point is like you can see how disturbed he is already and that that is making us not see him in the same way we see other children. And from there, even when he makes a friend and somebody who really cares about him, there's a degree to which he doesn't even care so much about the friendship as being able to beat up the bullies because that allows him to enact righteous justice. And I just think every moment that we get to reinforce the fact that these monsters are not made in one single tragic moment that we can say, oh, that was really sad and that broke him. But it is a lifetime of possibly abuse, possibly just having something in you that nobody notices and nobody attempts to get you help for. But it is not just one moment and then bad. Like it really lets tell the story of how this kid got to where he is now as Punisher. And then where he is now is increasingly frightening. You know, he just turns back and returns. I have to assume it's because he understands at this point it's too late. I These threats he's making, who are they for? Who are they even fucking for? You just face down, like, the world's scariest ninja Sophia Petrillo, who ultimately can unleash her inner squid monster. Alright, Frank, you're good with a gun, but you're not about to splat your way out of here. And I think the problem I find is not with any, like, I love the story, I love the beats. The problem I find is this has always been the issue with The Punisher. The Punisher is a short-term solutions guy. The Punisher is a, I'm gonna figure the fuck out of thing X that gets me to thing Y, bang, 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 look at me, I'm doing flashy finger guns. But what's the what's the fucking plan, Frank? What's the fucking plan? How are you getting out of this? Because the end of this issue reminds us of something that I think is so fucking important. Frank might have the worst job in the world, right? And, you know, he took it. He signed up for this. He is the piece of shit that made this his life. But so Frank has this horrible job and it's a nightmare. And his boss is like literally trying to keep him alive to keep making him more evil. And if he refuses to become more evil, then I don't actually think they'll ever kill him. I think they'll just keep reanimating him more evil somehow that's actually a thing if the hand brings you back you come back a little bit more evil so i don't know why they're not all about killing him and reanimating him but whatever the other thing is there is now an external force that has a big problem with what frank's doing and by that of course i mean judgment day the celestials are going to take a look at frank and go i think you've been bad you've killed as many people as us no i'm kidding i mean aries yeah aries wants his dude back and i think aries is willing to kill him like i'm pretty serious about this I think Ares is going to look at this and say, all right, if I can't have him, I need him off the board. I can't have someone so good at death doing death for someone else. I need him doing war for me. And I'm really curious to see how this can possibly play out. I mean, I think part of why we've seen Frank continuing to build up that, you know, fireball power that he's been doing out of his eyes is so that we can believe he can destroy Ares. Marvel gods can die. They come right back. Somebody picks up the axe and then, you know, they're Ares strike. And, you know, by crack a thum, I will punch doom, transform into Ares strike. Evil can take a high by my Green Lantern's light or whatever. So I get it. Ares can die in a way that I'm fine with because it's what the fuck ever. It's, you know, magic, it's gods. He's going to come right back. Punisher dying here, coming back, puts it strictly in the world of him coming back is crazy. If Ares dies in this fight, it kind of means nothing to me outside of furthering Punisher's story. But if Punisher dies in this fight, it means everything
anything to me in terms of furthering Punisher's story. And I think seeing Maria have this moment where she is laid on the table and confronted with the beat, it seems like she's getting, if not resurrected, because she didn't technically die, she's getting kind of retrofitted with more... Evil juice. Evil juice, exactly. I feel like getting her to a place where she also is around to torture Frank, not just tempt him with the possibility that he gets his family back... Well, oh, that's really, so good. I mean, it really, you know, the idea that they would kill his family, that's the thing that ultimately, you know, they run into the forest because Frank realizes that the archpriestess will kill hand members' families to punish the hand members. I don't think she's interested in doing that with Frank. I think she's really interested in corrupting him in much more complicated ways. And I think having, starting off with this seemingly pure, innocent version of his wife that just needs his help and is so confused and slowly wiping that away way and revealing a corrupting influence beneath that is really going to make him spiral on top of potentially doing something like killing and resurrecting him. I mean, we've said it from the first issue, but he just, he has never had control of this situation. And that is really important here because I think, again, it speaks to the idea of the Punisher as a symbol being so much more complicated and used in ugly ways than people think. There just is no way to pull this back and be like, no, there's great intentions here and good things it's always going to be wrapped up in death and murder and darkness and the hand is really who is who we're putting down and saying you have to confront it at this point if you're with the hand there's no getting out of this there's no writing your way into oh frank actually is kind of a good guy and anybody who wants to do vigilantism and kill worse guys is actually okay in my book this is where we really deal with the fact that frank is a bad guy the question of big scale morality is one of the hottest topics at Marvel right now. Like every writer must be like, oh, you got morality notes? I got morality notes. And I think that's how we wound up with the span of titles we have today, where we're going to be taking a further look at Judgment Day number two and Legion of X number four. It's a really constant thread of why are we doing what we do and who are we creating a world for in terms of creating a safe culture. And it's going to be a really interesting summer as Judgment Day continues to unfold. Fold. TK, I love talking about Punisher with you, and I can't wait to come back to talk Punisher number six when we get to see Punisher come up against Ares. And in the meantime, we're going to get another issue of Daredevil, and the fact that that fight is looming makes me all the more excited when it doesn't come up in either book because I still know it's coming, and like there's just this undercurrent of energy behind both these titles that is really exciting. And we can't wait to bring you guys that coverage. Don't forget, you guys can check out our coverage three times a week every week. That's MC2 Mondays with me and this guy, where we are taking a look now at sort of like the aftermath of the MC2, really exciting stuff. We also have more incredible modern Marvels and premiere coverage for you Wednesdays and Fridays, taking a look at all corners of the Marvel Universe. Don't forget, you guys can get everything you need about this show from xsforpodcast.com as well as xsforpodcast on Twitter. You guys can check out my original work at kidriotcomics.com as well as in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology featuring some comic greats such as Joe Glass, Cena Grace, Terry Bloss, and more. You guys can also check out some amazing content over on our partner YouTube channel, the Hubs Plus Network, as well as the video series, The Billy Club, where myself and series contributor Tori Sheehan take a look at Daredevil story by story, plus every bit of Daredevil news that is fit to print. And until next time, we hope you guys enjoy these last two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, I guess you're only free of Judgment Day if you're the Punisher. I have no idea how he's missing out on that bullshit, but we'll see ya. Bye. 
Good morning, everyone. I'm Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O H Mega Sentinel. Hey, it's TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnate x gray x. Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And I hope you all survive this experience. Unlike my hopes in humanity after this issue. Oh my God. I mean, Tom's a real dick, but we've got some good ones in the mix. We did, but you know, the one Tom is enough. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, with six people representing all of humanity, and I, I immediately put this on Twitter, but like everybody falls into one category. These six people are kind of like all very industrialized, part of like developed nations. I, I, I guess if these are the six people representing humanity, it's not a very diverse group insofar as like cultural diversity. True. That's fair. I, I didn't think these were six people representing all of humanity. So- much as just six random people selected by the bots to die but they do all seem to be from a cultural standpoint that is a lot more relatable to i think uh americans than anybody Mm -hmm. else yeah Yeah, i don't actually really think they represent i just think it's a funny like everybody's a tom you're such a jada like there are six like different uh it's like i i would love to have seen like very different people giving these perspectives i completely like it just i think it would have even been more interesting but i think it's funny that like regardless of who the actual people are what the opinion is is kind of the thing that they're trying to be like some people hate the mutants some people love the mutants some people are terrified that they're going to be destroyed by the giant kaiju like it's just you know (laughs) it's a mixed bag and it's all the things that we're thinking from day to day definitely nice to get a lot more nuance towards the human perspective on mutants and eternals after the first issue in which they were uniformly bigoted and hateful it's nice to see that there are people who want to help the mutants but don't know how to do it or don't have any power to do it so they just tweet about it that's very relatable to a person on twitter how did everybody feel about the second issue after the heartrending that was going on in the first and the i guess i should say continued heartrending going on over in x-men red i mean for me the real carryover from the x-books was immortal x-men and how the fight with the hex kind of continues from a more objective perspective in this issue versus being pretty tightly focused on exodus's perspective in immortal x-men like going from a really tight perspective on a character like Exodus and sort of getting this really beautiful moment of transcendence that kind of then rolls into violence as he realizes that like he wants to be this this crusading knight against the Hex and you know fights very valiantly and then we go and we see that same thing kind of from the perspective of a lot more people and we see that it's a lot more complicated and that maybe it wasn't as great as we thought it was in terms of the effect that it had. I really have appreciated the complex ballet they're doing to tell this story so far. I have some concerns about how quickly we get to some stuff towards the end of the issue and what that means for the rest of the crossover, but the especially the start and the, the hex battle to me was very cool and well done coming off of Immortal X-Men. The pacing of this event has been very good so far. I've appreciated how they've used the axe books to really give us the large beats of the events and then the series, the main series, to flesh them out and show us what's what's going on in more detail and more nuance more internalization of the characters this issue is just so balanced and so entertaining you've got the fight on Krakoa balanced out by the building of a god this book is doing some interesting work faking me out
out with this God thing, because, you know, with all of these hints of Miracle Man coming into the Marvel Universe, I keep thinking that this is going to be like, oh, is this going to be it? Is this going to be it? And so when there were these references to like the God made in the image of the heroes, I was like, oh, is this going to be it? But I'm not disappointed to see a giant celestial judge stand up and say he's going to judge every single person individually. There's something about that that feels right for the Marvel world. Uh, So many people think that they're so small in the face of these like very powerful heroes. I'm enjoying it so far. And this is not usual for me. Like I'm not really loving Valerio Shidi's face work in this book as much. Like I think there's a lot of big, beautiful battles going on. And maybe that's where, you know, his focus was for especially this issue. Usually like I'm like gobsmacked by everything he's been doing. But there's been a little bit of oddness in the face work to me that it seems like he was almost like, is this sinister or is this Miss Sinister? I don't know. Other than that, like art wise, I loved like the designs of Kaiju. I've loved, you know, like the big epicness of the battle, colors, beautiful lettering. It's just that that one little problem I have with some of the face work. But otherwise, Axe Body Spray has been uh. shaving up to be uh, an okay event so far. I I like this version of a what it is to build a god story, but much better than I like Legion of X. Yeah, you know, good points all around. The pacing and structure of this are so good, and I think that if this event continues the way that it has been, like a 37 part event with like really really tight plotting excellent pacing good structure and 24 hours to be completed is really exciting to me and there's so very much that's going to be going on in here over the next three or four months i did like seeing a little bit more of how the avengers work together with the x-men when they're working on something obviously the gears grind a little bit there's a lot of bad blood there and a lot of justified anger at the way that various people have been treated in the past namely the x-men by the avengers And Mm -hmm. I also have to agree that there are certain panels of sinister Captain America and Jean Grey that look like they were drawn by J.R.J.R. during Avengers vs. X-Men. I was going to say, there's a face of Steve that I'm like, I looked at it and I was like, wait, did Greg Land draw this? Yeah. That's like, that's that's Digital Eleven. uh, Yeah, exactly. And then on that same page, the Kurt to me is amazing. I agree that it's, there are some not, really not great ones, but it's really funny that on a single page, you can have that Steve which is really crisp but I don't think is right oh, yeah. for Valerio Skeety. Like he's got those DSL lips and it just it looks trace big orbits on yeah. these people that look almost like they're turning into John Romita Jr.'s like really stylized faces and oh I see that yeah Sinister has that when he says ah penance but like Makari looks perfect right above it and Cyclops looks great on the next page so it does it does feel like it was a little maybe haphazard yeah. maybe a little rushed but honestly it still all works I really like the Sinister look because it's so kind of speaks to his internal state okay like he's gross and in juxtaposition to ajax and makari he is just like this gross fallen little ogre and i like that that comes across really well like he's really odious in this scene he's not as consistent as i think i would like the facial design to be because it seems to change a lot over the course of the issue but he is so it's definitely nice to have a not hot sinister because they've been drawing sinister as sexy for so long and it's nice to be reminded that this is like a really shit dude 
not that like ugly people are the same thing as like bad people obviously that's not what's going on here i think there's just a little inconsistency in the art but it is nice to look at sinister and not be attracted to him for the first time in quite a long time and i don't even think he's drawn like ugly he looks ugly of soul it's not a physical ugliness it's just like he's like oily and it's you know i agree with the inconsistency i think the one consistency is the attempt to make him kind of look worse and especially compared to like lucas vernick drawing him an immortal there's always that fine line between did you just make like the ugly person the evil person and i think in this case it's just he's a prisoner and he's looking like one and he deserves to be one so it's it's all kind of playing together i tried to just kind of look at the strangely exaggerated orbits as like he just got beat up his face is all puffy you know something like that i don't know what's going on with cat but you know long day i'm sure it's been a long day over at avengers mountain before they got over there yeah cat looks like he's been smoking like halloween and then put on his makeup that, that's like the exact look that's on cat's face there when cyclops is yelling at him he's like i'm so high right now but i'm so pretty just leave me alone there was one panel of magic that looked very gray gland as well maybe it's just like the combination of the colors and the pencils like maybe she doesn't know what to do with her face when she's telepathing at people instead of screaming at them because usually her <laughs> mouth is open you know yeah this battle raises timing questions for me insofar as the Krakoan timeline because i see bishop and i see rachel hanging around and both of those characters are often very different places in the current book runs that they're in so it does seem to take place after that. Having 37 issues makes this weird because it's like, does this happen after everything we're reading right now? Or does it happen before some things? Because like, I mean, we're not going to know what happened to Mary Jane until Spider-Man 10, which yeah. comes out in like September. It might be a sliding timeline for some of the book because I know Legion of X, the fight that David had with Uranus isn't going to show up until Legion of X number six. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely tough because everything is happening in 24 hours. There's 37 issues spread out over three months. A lot of stuff in this has seemingly been after the end of other series and seemingly before some other parts. I don't think the timing is wrong. I think it's just hard to keep it all in your head. And it's we kind of had that trouble with the, the first issue, too, where we were like, all right, this all takes place over a few hours, but they're having bagels. And we couldn't tell if it was something that had just happened, something that was about to happen or something that was happening currently. I think it's just that everything is happening very quickly. Rachel and Bishop are pretty easy to do like a comics reader. No prize. I can get through an explanation because Knights of X has one more issue. Unless something is really happening at the end of it, we can probably assume that whatever they did happened a little bit before this and it publishing-wise, it just didn't come out in the right order. But, you know, it, it happens and she comes home and then this happens. Marauders is going on longer, but the arc is coming to, if not an end, a, a natural place where they might return home. So I think it's safe to assume that in both cases, there will be a place where it's like, okay, we're leaving space. Okay, we're leaving Otherworld. And it just kind of, in a perfect world, those things would have happened beforehand. So it was very clear, like, obviously they'd be home by now. But I mean, that's been happening forever. So we can get it. I had that same problem with the Hellfire Gala this year because Kate and Bishop were in it. And I was like, wait, but they're in space. Yeah, that was that was really that tough. That was a little tougher. I don't, I don't yeah. know if I'm inclined to be as fair to that. Yeah. I'll tell you what, something I'm going to be looking out for in this series is if I see Gambit in any of these small series. Yeah. Seeing Kanon and Grey Crow was interesting. So I'll be, I'll be keeping a lookout and seeing if we see Gambit show up somehow. <laughs> Gambit showing up in Judgment Day is like the 
Lego spoilers of the MCU movies. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about these six people. I want to hear your opinions on each of them. We don't need to talk about Tom. He sucks, right? <laughs> Tom sucks in old school Jack Kirby comics, and he does not like how the Krakoan era has changed the X-Men. To be Wait, is he ever. making X-Men 97? Yeah. I mean, is, he, is he on X Twitter right now? <laughs> I mean, that's what's so great about Tom, though. Like, he is somebody that we're all experiencing in this world where some of us are so in love with what the X-Men have become, and some people are so disgusting about the amount of like great mutant genocide people using muties as a slur now like intentionally to be provocative mm-hmm. tom is these people and i love that there's this guy that the writers are recognizing exists yeah it's very funny that he has that very old school like 1950s comics shirt on i think that yes. is a brilliant touch yeah i mean i think we're all like... katrina here <laughs> <laughs> i mean i would prefer to get more done than katrina but i i just appreciate how distinct these stances are though these six different stances around this issue how nuanced and like real feeling they are because Tom does feel real. They all feel real to a degree. These characters feel familiar in that way of like, yeah, we've we've engaged with these people in discussion before. And I'm really interested to see how their stories ground this. Obviously, poor Arjun didn't get very far, but like what's going to happen with the rest of with these other five people? Jada is the one that really is interesting to me because she is in Judgment Day Volume 1, first protesting the mutants and then yeah. celebrating the attack and then coming to this zone of like, oh, I didn't want it to go this far, which uh-huh. is like very, you know, leopards eating my face party. She's the only one that we have seen <laughs> more than in this setup. So I would also be really fascinated to know if we will keep following along with them. Yeah, it, she's a very nuanced character. I'm not sure that how much I like the idea that she had always raised her child to respect the mutants but then like one bad thing happened and she decided oh well actually the mutants were only ever on their own side even though the actual reason that I can't get these medicines is because there are countries that don't have treaties with them and there's this whole like logistical problem of getting it to every human on earth and they're already doing their own stuff like this I don't know it's a nuanced and realistic position that a human might have it's an interesting position like that she would not be pushed this far to genocide a a really reasonable one but that she would like flip on the mutants after a tragic event that's also a realistic thing i think arjun is terribly tragic because he's like i've survived so much and honestly disasters just keep happening in the Mm -hmm. world and the heroes will save us they always do and then like the heroes are directly responsible for arjun's death like he dies specifically because somebody kills you know a member of the hex we are probably going to see each of these people die and maybe more people die since that one of the hex is already back to die again real human cost that we get to see what these people think about what's going on what their average lives are like dislike some of them like some of them more i think most of them are just people i have an immense sense of pity for now that i know what's going to happen to them but even before that because they all seem to have this like whatever i feel about this whatever i can do about this it's going to happen without me i'm powerless to stop it and i'm just kind of a spectator who feels like they are rooting for a side or another you know what an interesting commentary on the world today we are of the faceless masses who are you know watching events unfold and you know demagogues and big named people take the world in directions that we don't always love that we feel powerless to make changes against and this really channels that feeling and that energy you know shows you that there are people on the ground that feel all sorts of different ways but have no way to really enact or be agents in the world because you know power is kept in these upper echelons with these you know these people who have all of it daniela is really interesting because she is that person that regardless unless she dies regardless of what happens with the avengers and the x-men and the eternals she needs to worry about 
making enough money to live and yeah. she's so mm -hmm. deeply oppressed by systems that go beyond what this fight is going to change that in some ways it none of this really matters to her and I feel like that's something that a lot of us experience where you know like whatever happens with Trump and the FBI we still have to struggle to work to survive and maybe not make rent and maybe not pay bills so while of course I care because there's a lot of reasons to care at the end of the day whether justice is served or nothing happens the things that I'm worried about for the immediate survival of myself and my family don't really change and for Daniela it's really very much the same thing and that's such an important perspective when it comes to thinking about how all of this stuff affects humans in the real world and in this fictional world because I think that is a lot of what we experience and the best thing that can happen is that we have these things to look to to point to and aspire to something better but the worst that happens is that we get caught worrying about them and not focusing on making the kinds of changes that mean that we won't have to struggle so hard just to exist in this world. Agreed. Speaking of Daniela, the last thing she says in that first panel is like hit me really fucking hard when she said like still part of her things. It was nice that the Eternals told me. That's like exactly how I felt when I heard that the Supreme Court was planning to remove the right to abortion, you know, by overturning Roe versus Wade. I was just like, there was this part of me that was like, this is horrible. There's absolutely nothing I can personally do to stop it happening. Although there are small things I can contribute that can, you know, like maybe make a groundswell and maybe help like become part of a solution or part of a resistance against that. But like, ultimately there was nothing I, I couldn't go straight up and be like, you can't overturn this. A part of me did think like, well, it was nice that they told us what the, what the evil plan was, you know, at least now I know to expect it when it comes. And that's, it's a dark and it's a helpless feeling. I do like that foreshadowing we got like two panels ahead where like Tom's wife is like, who died and made you an eternal? And he laughs. And then <laughs> two panels later, John is dead. And I'm like, no, like that really made me like take notice and like, ooh, I really wish Tom had died, but can't wait for somebody to die and make Tom an eternal. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about the hex? I mean, the hex are like the coolest shit in the universe. They are my new favorite Eternals characters. I'm really happy with them all. Do y'all have favorite members of the Hex? I think mine might be like the electric tentacle monster or the one that looks like a vagina bat. Well, <laughs> I want to caution us against thinking of these characters as monsters. No, they are people, but I think of monsters as people. Fair. Uh, that moment with Exodus and the Memetor where she says, please don't, right before yes. he kills her, really got me. Yes. These six creatures are thinking, feeling, emoting beings who are maybe not in control of themselves who are maybe being compelled to attack Krakoa. You know, they've been perfectly content to not be in an attack state for all this time, and now they're being brought in and used this way. And their abilities feel like terraforming powers, not like they should, like they, they're automatically destructive powers. The, these feel like the things that you would use to terraform a planet to make it happen. Which, of course, are both creative and destructive because they'll destroy anything that was there before in yeah. order to mm -hmm. create something new. You can read Sign and the other Eternals as maybe not being willing participants but that please don't i read that a little bit differently i read that not so much as like a creature crying out in pain and hoping not to be killed which is absolutely a valid read but i ever thought of that a little bit more like do the hex know about the eternals because i think they do i think they know mm, what happens when they die yeah I, I think sign was saying please don't kill me because you're going to kill a human and i yeah. don't want that that's something we try to avoid the page at the beginning that introduces all the characters that sign and arjun arjun is below sign in the list directly <gasps> and i wonder if that's uh, an intentional lineup. I did oh not notice God. that. That is super interesting. That is really cool. You know, like, I, I wonder yeah. what we're going to see. I think my favorite, like, name-wise is uh, Regina Flange. I mean, Phoebe Regin Reginax. <laughs> <laughs> She's such a 
such a Phoebe. They are such a Phoebe. Like, they're amazing. Like, I love that name. Like, the design is beautiful. I did get some feels for Sign, the Mimitar, when they were, you know, like, please don't. Because I, I really got the impression with David that it was to, like, don't kill me because you're going to kill a human to do that. So, big monsters, kaiju, are really, you know, at heart. Eternals just like the ones that we know and love, and they don't want to do harm to humans. Other than that, though, like, the the hex haven't really connected with me yet. I don't know if they're going to, or if it's just, you know, they're meant to be this big, ginormous plot device with some cool, funny names and, you know, like, a, a really tragic connection to these humans we're following. They do all have great names. They do all have extremely good designs. Some of them look a little bit more like Kaiju from very, like, Evangelion. Some of them look a little bit more like, you know, like Themex, the one that's like a pink bat, looks like something straight out of old school Godzilla made modern, and I really, really enjoyed that. Some of them look like villains from, like, Inferno video games. My favorite, I think, is Rekha Centaurus. First, because I'll always love a centaur. Second, because of Cyclops' line about, why didn't I think to mention a sentient centaur that can produce its own plants? I always forget the obvious thing. And yeah, I mean, they're all so freaking cool and have, I mean, I think every influence that you just mentioned has to have been thought of and put in there and other ones. And for me, one of the really cool things about them is we all, the four of us, spent a lot of time reading and talking about the Eternals and talking about it as kind of a mythic uh, story that was being told about these godlike people. But they were really people, godlike people. They, you know, they're humanoid. The, you know, the weirdest you get is like an Oranos or a Thanos or all these ones that still two limbs, two arms, two legs. I love the idea that like, if we're going to get mythological with the idea of the Eternals, these are like the biblically correct angels. These are the ones yeah. that like, if you're going to make space robot gods, come on, give me space robot gods. And this is the first hint of that. Just like the Eternals are often mistaken for gods on Earth, these could clearly be mistaken for ancient monsters of myth and legend. Phoebe right. Reginex looks quite a lot like a giant squid or a kraken. There's a literal centaur and a mimitar, which is close enough to a minotaur for me. Yep. You know, these, yeah. these each look like ancient giant beasts that would feature as monsters rather than gods in the same myths that the Eternals might have been confused for. Oh my gosh, and the names being just slightly off, like, sign the Mimitar, like, I could see how language would progress to, like, turn that into Minotaur. Like, you know, like, mispronunciations over centuries turns it into a Minotaur and changes that myth. Oh my god. I like the read that Sign is asking because they don't want a human to be killed, and I still see that as completely possible, but I saw it as a moment of connection because the Krakoans don't want to be killed either. They don't have the same sacrifice of a person when they resurrect but like the whole point is don't be cavalier with your life even if we can do this because it can't just be we are endless and can throw ourselves in the fire anytime we want there has to be more to this whole thing than that well the eternals have a reason not to be cavalier with their lives right well i mean they ought to but if a lot of them very clearly don't care so it's a very interesting these two groups that can resurrect in different ways and are going to have thoughts about what life means broadly as a as a monoculture but then you know as you dial in difference i mean very clearly for kurt it's very important not to be cavalier and he is forming a movement around that for other people it's probably okay to be cavalier for them and it would probably be difficult to convince them otherwise and it's the same thing for the eternals icarus is really upset about it but druig doesn't care i still think most of them don't know 
know, though. Like, I, yes, I agree that, like, there are Eternals who don't care as much. They, they make a very big point about the idea that Druid does not want them to tell any of the other Eternals because he thinks it'll turn them against him. True, true. Which, when you have something like the Unimind, you'd think that somewhere in there that information would get shared. Yeah, well, they're not part of the Unimind. Celestia Eternals and the ones mm-hmm. in the Deviants are being kept out of the Unimind. They're excluded from it, and they're excluded for that reason. Druid even enlists the Celestia people so that they can kind of keep the Deviant Eternals in line and keep them out of the Unimind, keep them from sharing that information. So I like, I see what you're saying, but I think that there's work being done by the writer to make sure that that doesn't happen in the pages so far. But yeah, I mean, like there's going to be a faction of Eternals that are going to say like, who cares? They're humans. Clearly Druig feels that way and several other ones do feel that way. But I don't think the balance of power would be the way it is if they all... It'll be, I bet by the end they will and it'll be fascinating to see how big a divide it is and what that Mm -hmm. means for the Eternals. Well, I think one piece of this puzzle is what is the story with the Hex? You know, have they been observing humanity the whole time that they've been here? Do they have the same kind of affection that the Lumarine Eternals do? Do they love humanity and hate being compelled to, you know, cause all of this devastation and destruction the way some of the Eternals do? These are six characters who have come onto the scene so suddenly who I now want so much more history on. I want to talk about the scariest thing that happens in this issue, the single most frightening thing, which is the Celestial saying, if I have a father, it's Tony Stark. Uh, Oh God. Oh God. Yeah. When I realized that he said, I will be a God in their image and he was wearing Tony Stark, I was already like, no, 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 no. This is very bad. But then I read Tony Stark being the absolute most flippant motherfucker I think he could possibly be. Given his personal history, given his tenure on the Avengers, given his friendship with Hank Pym, I cannot believe that he laughs to himself and says, like Hank and Ultron, right? Right? He said as he laughed, as he often does, like, are you drunk right now, Tony? Are you insane? Are you out of your mind? Why would you Why would you even make that comparison to Hank and Ultron and then laugh about it as if that is not absolutely going to happen to you 10 times? Because Ultron was a harmless robot. Ultron was created as a harmless robot who just caught him <laughs> by surprise from behind. This is a god. I think I would feel like almost better if Sinister had been the father of the god than Tony Stark. <laughs> uh, yeah. Honestly, honestly. Like, at least he would have had some evil machinations and probably dressed pretty fabulously for a big celestial, but like... But instead, this god is going to be very full of himself, and... Let's just remember, we can grow up well in spite of our fathers. What a bad way to start is all. They're not doing this celestial any favors giving him Tony Stark as a dad. Certainly not. But, you know, I am very confident this thing will have the ability to overcome its daddy issues and, you know, (laughs) do right by Earth. I really hope you are correct, Jake. I hope so, so much. But, like, I have, like, reading Ultron PTSD from the 90s and 2000s. (laughs) Well, and it's funny just because TK and I just read some arcs in Avengers where, like, Tony Stark's like, oh, that baby's not mine, is it? And now he has a godchild, and by that I do not mean what it usually means. I mean a child that is a god, which, yeah, it's really like an Atticus sense godchild? Is that what you're talking about? (laughs) It's really frightening. It's Kieran Gillen, so I feel really confident that we are supposed to be on edge, and that, you know, this will be, I'm sorry to say it, I love this Avengers run, Nathan knows I do, but I would even be a little worried if it were Jason Aaron writing it, that, you know, a line like that would be like, but we all know how great Tony is, so it's okay. But I think part of the point of this is like, yeah, 
yeah, it isn't great. I think that is so important because, you know, I think a lot of people look at X-Men readers and immediately assume that we're all going to hate the Eternals because they're attacking the X-Men. But no, we actually all hate the Avengers because they're cops and because they constantly try and be the moral arbiters of the world. And I think this is such a perfect example of the fact that like, even though this battle is happening where Eternals are attacking our beloved Krakoa, we're like, there's nuance here and there's stuff going on. We got to work this out. But we're really fucking annoyed at Tony Stark right now. That's super problematic. And we're really mad at Steve when he tries to admonish Cyclops for taking care of his people. Like the Avengers are still kind of the problem in a lot of ways. You literally just said it. They think they are the moral arbiters of the world. And that is something that bothered the shit out of me in Avengers vs. X-Men. Now they are literally the moral arbiters of the world because Tony Stark's blueprint child who has a similar nervous system is literally the moral arbiter of the world. That is so insane and metafictionally very good. I completely buy that Kieran Gillen knows how problematic X-Men fans find Tony Stark. And I I 100% believe that he threw that bit in there so that we would have this conversation right now or like reading it with Psy and be like, really? Oh, interesting. Because I could see that being a thing. I do think that throwing that Ultron line in there, it could be a red herring. It could be a way of saying like, oh, you should be worried about this, but maybe it's nothing to be worried about. But I also sometimes trust a writer to just be like, hey, by the way, remember that time this didn't go well? Oh, no, I think he's griefing us with the foreshadowing. Yeah, if the thought is that whether by Tony's influence or not, this judgmental celestial is going to be a problem. Yeah, 100% this judgmental celestial is going to be a problem. It's already set up in the fact that like either there are enough good people or there aren't and everyone dies. Like that's a that's a problematic dynamic going yeah. on. Yeah, hey, when you're reading that last page, do you not immediately go, oh, so everybody's going to die, right? <laughs> <laughs> that last page is a real Rorschach for your faith in humanity, I think. My question is, is it going to be all humans of Earth or all inhabitants of Earth? Like, is it just humans? Are humans off world going to be judged as well? Are the crawling, creepy creatures of the planet going to be judged? Like, how extensive is this process? I hope that we get a little bit more on that because humans are not the only creatures. It does say people of Earth, which is why I think that we're going to be saved by the inherent goodness of the Molite people who outnumber I was going to say dogs <laughs> will probably help us out there because yes, I think dogs, 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 so. dogs. I think dogs will definitely. Do- yep, yep. Dolphins, but dogs. Dolphins are a little too horny. That doesn't mean they're bad. Let's not sex shame the dolphins. This guy seems like he would judge. <laughs> well, no, not if he's got Tony Stark's brain in him. He'd be like, ah, uh, horny people to the front, please. <laughs> <laughs> God being the literal like mental kid of Tony Stark really makes me nervous because I've been reading too much Jason Aaron Avengers and everything goes back to Mephisto so I'm like oh my god how are they going to bring Mephisto into it? <laughs> well and, and more than anything else I think Tony Stark does not have a nuanced morality. He's very and this is why we have Civil War and Civil War 2 is because he's very black and white in his thinking. He's very blunt. For a futurist who comes up with all this technology he is very simple minded. In that sense I am a little bit worried about the like you have been judged it's a yes or a no and there's no gray space see i think he does have a lot of nuance i think it's just bad nuance like i think it's (laughs) when it comes to stuff like civil war like he's not like you have to register because everybody's good or evil he's like these are weapons and you know that's that's an interesting way of looking at things it's a more detailed way of looking at things but it's stupid like he has a complex thought process but it just kind of ends up spinning him in circles where he just does stuff based on where he is on the circle in that moment yeah i don't know tony stark not a man 
with a lot of nuance. We just recently saw in Empire how easily he could be manipulated by the emotional history of his time with the Avengers and his black and white view of good versus bad, alien versus familiar. But he's not the only father of this being. I mean, Sinister also helped create it. So maybe that'll even it out a little bit. There's also Ajax in there. So I don't know. I'm, I, I'm really pulling for Ajax's religious principles pulling through on this one. But that's that's the best hope I have. Definitely Makari and Ajax had a lot to do with the programming. So I think, honestly, that's going to be the biggest influence. I hope that that will be the biggest influence because they wanted to create a celestial that would be more in line with their modern principles and not a gen Like Ajax says, the, the celestials were genocidal maniacs, you know. I'm waiting for the reveal that Moira McTaggart like snuck some stuff. <laughs> no. I am struck, though, by the fact that this celestial has been put together by mutant sinister human Tony Stark and eternal Ajax and Makari. So it's, this being is like a mashup of all three factions in this fight. The real axe was this celestial the whole time. <laughs> this is the real Judgment Day. We were we were fooled by thinking it would be a war instead of a Judgment Day created by all three factions working <laughs> together. I, I hate that the mutant involved in it is a mutant only because he stole somebody fucking... Yeah, that really sucks. Yeah, that sucks cool. they're like, ah, oh, that guy's a mutant too. And like, only because he stole pieces <laughs> of a technically. mutant corpse. Yeah. Like, fuck that guy. Don't put him in the conversation with us. He's a human. <laughs> He is. He's the world's most human. Do we think that Judgmental Celestial has Krakoan tech on him? Is that what all those little red circles are on his body? He already had little red circles all over his body. But yeah, I mean, the little red portals are very Krakoan, if not for the original red portals of the helmet. But these are not like those. So there's like a little bit of Krakoa going on there. They look weird. You let the Avengers live in you for like 50 something issues. And what do you think will happen to you? There's a little bit of Arish on the Judge in there. There's a little bit of Dreaming Celestial. Yeah, it, I did love that scene where they were going to the Dreaming Celestials thing and you had the two sinister, like, clones? Sinister boys. boys. The sinister boys. I love that Tony Stark is always going around on a flying pack. There's there's just a lot of fun art in this, honestly. And yeah. Marte Gracia really pulls the whole thing together. The astonishing colors that he's been giving us since House of X number one, really. Did it... How old is this Starbrand? Because she looks like she's a teenager now. She's aging rapidly. I like that Starbrand is back on the scene. I really love Echo's whole Phoenix look in this issue. And there's this one moment right before the celestial pops up where Kurt is holding destiny and says, please deliver us. That was probably my favorite moment in this issue. Just wanted to put that out there. I thought that was so freaking sweet. That was really good. I, I did not appreciate yeah. Kurt shouting about how unfair Exus was being to the Avengers, even though he, he is being unfair, but we all know that Kurt. But it is, it is really good to see him like reverting back to like the best kind of Nightcrawler for a little bit there towards the end. Yeah, I, I gotta say, like I, I love how this is shaping up so far. I love the, the dynamic of three different groups instead of two different groups being at each other and you know Avengers seem to be playing you know trying to play the middle ground or or the X-Men side this time which is crazy because you know they went to war with the X-Men over the X-Men had Phoenix but then they got their own Phoenix and Starbrand well so. I think it's a little bit of a fake out right because they're not actually all fighting the Avengers yeah. and the X-Men and the Eternals are all working together on the same problem or our, our Eternals that we know and love the Eternals that matter when you're talking about the Eternals Druid does not <laughs> He's an enemy. He's like Warlord Crow in a lot of the old comics. Nothing against Crow. I love Crow. Don't let anybody tell you I don't love him. I do want to see Uranus destroyed. Thank you. Uh, but we're podcasting right now. 
I want to see him in Apocalypse. Wait, Uranus and Apocalypse and Genesis? Now that. Yeah, she can be in the mix. That's that's like an, a, a mutant quality polyamory thruple I'd be here for. At yeah. some point, I just want to see those two kiss. Anything else can happen. I just, let's get there and then we'll figure out where to go after. I, I did not get to be on our Immortal X-Men coverage this week, but I gotta say, Exodus is making me extremely uncomfortable, but in like really interesting and good ways. I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah, He's my favorite Pink Crusader baby i hate him so much yeah. and i'm like really interested to see how he's becoming a hero to krakoa because he has not repentant at all for all the horrific shit he's caused and the stuff he's been involved in the genocides he's been involved in. but he's a really interesting character and i'm excited to see where kieran gillen seems very interested in bringing exodus to the forefront <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Jake, and you can find me over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H, Mega Sentinel. Hey everybody, it's Arturo Yatusawa. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hey guys, it's the alien superstar Broadway, and you can find me on Twitter at B-Way-3-R-D. That's B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X-Nate-X-Gray-X, and we hope you survive this experience on like Dr. Nemesis's coffee. I was going to say Glob Herman, but that was also something that did not survive the experience. Listen, there are tragedies in this world, and then there is Dr. Nemesis's coffee. This is definitely an era where spilled coffee is a character. Yeah. And then there's sex with Nightcrawler. We must be talking about (laughs) Legion of X number four. Make love, not sects. This is written by Cy Spurrier with art by Jan Basildua, colors by Federico Blee, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles with Tom Muller and Jay Bowen on design. So we're so rearing to talk about this book, starting with that conversation, that postcoital conversation between Nightcrawler and Weaponless Zen. Wow. Postcoital, midcoital, postcoital again, take a little nap, come back to it. I mean, come indeed. Yeah, very yeah. much yeah. so. Nightcrawler. Weaponless Zen has at least one or two weapons, honey, and she knows how to use it because she kept up with Nightcrawler, who by all accounts is possibly the best lover on Krakoa? I mean, I really have always loved Nightcrawler as a sexual being and the idea that he flirts with a lot of people and you can assume that he gets laid enough, but I'm more than ready to have an issue that is just like, no, like seriously, he will fuck for hours. It's three or four times at least. Everybody walks away satisfied to the point where you're literally like, no, I do not have another one in me. If we're going to keep saying it for like 50 years, we really might as well go for it at this point oh, and i do love a pairing that's like meeting in the middle and i just appreciate the fact that they both kind of challenge each other which i feel like also makes like the boinking much better um seems like it's a woman who not only like keeps up with nightcrawler but again challenges him versus like someone who's entirely enamored with him and like under his charm and sway and she does really challenge him i really really like the content of their conversation i'm really curious about what you all thought of Zen calling Nightcrawler's approach to policing half-baked because it rejects the rigidity of control and punishment. I don't feel like I am ready to pass my judgment on Zen yet. I feel 
like there's a few little things I'm waiting to see pan out, including this suggestion that the Fisher King is her father. I don't know if this is a character that I'm going to start to fall in love with and then discover is like the ultimate betrayer. And so like in a big cerebral issue like this, where a lot of higher concepts are getting talked about, I always like kind of put a pin in it. And I'm like, when this arc is done, when this series is done, go back and revisit and see if all of that stuff is consistent or if I was just lulled into a false sense of security so that when this character betrayed me, it hurt even more. I think that's a fair point. And that is a concept that can be applied to a lot of our Rocky cousins. <laughs> like I've developed some massive trust issues thanks to Iska specifically. I love her, but I don't trust her. Completely different character, but there are some some parallels, you know? I love that she's challenging Nightcrawler and kind of calling him out on his hypocrisy. I think that's a really good foil for Nightcrawler. That's like a, a good balance. What we're seeing with the Iraqi and the developing like trust issues that we have is that, you know, they're not coming from a place of being superheroes in the way that we would conceive. Like many of them are the heroes of their own people, but most of the Krakoans are coming from a superhero sort of world and paradigm, right? The age of Marvels. And so we're watching them toil with developing a society, whereas on the other end, the Iraqi have a society and they're now dealing with like life, you know, that society clashing with others. Sense critique of Nightcrawler's understanding of policing, I think, makes sense if she's coming from a standpoint of policing, whereas Nightcrawler is trying to figure out how do we develop a societal culture and spirit and also enforce the laws that will help keep this society going while also not policing. Because he could just be an Avenger if he wanted to police people. And there's a certain flexibility that he wants to bring to it too, because it seems like rigidity is the thing that that cuts too hard against a people. Having rules that can't be received organically or applied organically or applied in a way where compassion and empathy lead first and foremost is not the mutant way and not the way he wants to build up his society. And so I've been thinking a lot more about these sects of Krakoan powers. You do have the Quiet Council, which is ostensibly the outward facing government and, and you know has some degree of control over the, you know, the day-to-day operations of the mutant nation. But there are also other loci of power and influence and cultural power and influence. And the Legionnaires, the altar, that's that's a big one that is counterculture to the Quiet Council. And uh, you know, it's it is its own kind of sect within Krakoan culture. And I'm curious about the the building conflict around those things. On the Quiet Council, a lot of people have their factions, their power bases, and Xavier's functionally is X-Force, right? He helps like to generate X-Force. He's often the one giving Beast the permission slip. And so the contrast between of one of Xavier's first generation students running like a black ops security institution and his second generation in Nightcrawler trying to develop something that is countercultural, that is about, you know, free expression and consent more so than security and rigidity. I think that sort of opposing forces is really fascinating to see the like the way that those line up on the consent is a big part of what Nightcrawler and Legion are doing over here and and with the Ultra. Like, yeah, they're, you know, chasing down Skinjacker, which as a I... character he's a really, really great challenge to what the Legionnaires are trying to do because you know they don't want to be contributing to a carceral state, but like what are they reduced to? Sticking that kid in a jar to be watched over by volunteers with no long-term solution to how to work with him. Yeah. I think that I'm really excited to see how that story resolves and what their solution ends up being for dealing with this character. If I have the 
Emma Frost solution, honey. Emma Frost, how to deal with this bullshit 101. Kill him. I have room in my heart to forgive one body snatcher, and I was surprised I did when when Malice, Alice McMalister or whatever, <laughs> like that story. One of my favorite Excalibur issues made me sympathize with a character that was definitely on my short but irredeemable list of villains like we're better off not resurrecting. And now I want to see more of her. Like, but Skinjacker, there's something so fundamentally incel about him and just mm. off-putting. He he's like, he is like if Quentin Choir had, you know, been been shaped to go into all of his dark, darkest impulses, like that Skinjacker. It also takes us back to X-Force and Sabretooth. And I mean, not that those are related, but just the idea that there are these various factions that feel that justice is done in different ways. And, you know, I, in some ways, I maybe don't disagree with you insofar as like to simply kill him and end it right there might be more of a merciful form of justice than what was done to Sabretooth. And it might at least be more cognizant of the idea that we are doing what we feel we need to when it comes to keeping our people safe rather than the pit, which is just kind of awful in every way, didn't keep anybody safe, was sort of meant to just sweep a problem under the rug in a way that the council wouldn't have to deal with it, but wound up being so much worse. And probably for me, if I were going to write the story, I wouldn't have killing him be the way to go about things. But I do think there's this interesting parallel between Skinjacker and Sabretooth insofar as can either person be redeemed? Question mark. And what do you do with somebody that can't be redeemed or who is either causing so much harm or has caused so much harm? There's no reason to think they won't continue to. How do you make the best of that situation? And how do you look at yourself in the mirror after you've done what you need to do? The Quiet Council's approach with Sabretooth was really horrible and the consequences are coming back many fold. And I think that we're seeing this other approach of possibly holding too much hope in redemption and not being concerned enough about the effect that somebody could have also having really deleterious effects. So there's got to be a lot more to be explored in terms of how justice and safety are dealt with on Krakoa. But I think we are seeing two ends of the spectrum in terms of it can't just be these things. Have Fenris come and, and rescue Skin. There's no solution that involves Fenris. Being <laughs> recruited by them and like you know it's Krakoa and yes peace love and and sex in the habitats make love not sex <laughs> but there are some characters that are just better off as villains and I think that the, the word insult is such like a, an apt word because I think it does put that in at least for me it puts that like right in my like consciousness where it's like okay well like what do you do with these people where it's like well I'm not going to have you know coffee and tea and uninsel you like that's not my gig but it's like there is a question of like what do we do and how do you make this person um uh, productive and useful sounds so like capitalistic and icky but like how do you make them functional within the bounds of Krakoan society um I know exactly what the answer is I'm actually really intrigued by that um from size work because it doesn't seem like he has any interest in not being awful so like where do you put someone who wants to be awful without subjecting everyone 
non-consensually to their awfulness, right? Like Fenris can go run around. I mean, Celine got capped, but for a while she was just chilling. She could like burn some externals alive and it was like, yeah, whatever. But like at a certain point it was like, okay, you're endangering the island. You're like, you're removing agency and freedom from your fellow citizen. Your hope's going to shoot you in the head. Fair. And I just, I don't know what the solution for somebody like Skinjacker is. Because again, you have the saber tooth of it all. Celine is the kill them and put them in the bottom of the queue. But like that's a problem that's going to come up later. I'm almost certain of it. I think the original Cassandra Nova solution is probably the most elegant solution for a character whose power is such an outsized threat when it's used so toxically. That's the way to treat incels in real life is to deprogram them. You know, whatever caused Skinjacker to be the way that he is, he clearly doesn't see people as people. He sees people as objects to be used. It reads like someone coming from a place of a lot of pain and a lot of anger. That's a doorway into empathy and understanding for someone who has the capacity to do that work with someone like Skinjacker. Theoretically, yes, absolutely we should. But in practice, what we've seen is, you know, nothing much better than than the whole, right? Like even on Utopia, they had rehab figured out a little bit better. They had, you know, danger running virtual reality, simu- you know, simulation or whatever on her inmates, which were horrible, horrible villains and friends of humanity and definitely, uh, you know, villains that deserve that much and, and so much worse. But here on Krakoa, it's been like pretty vague. And and obviously like that problem has has been uh, persistent. And I appreciate that the, that the Legionnaires are a separate unit, like that they are keeping themselves separate from, you know, the other power structures of Krakoa. They don't quite know how to do what they're doing. They just have this idea that they know that they don't want to put people in the pit. That doesn't feel like justice. That just feels like literally sweeping the problem under the rug. He says at the beginning that it's like in all matters, I think it was physical, sexual, spiritual, consent is like the highest maxim. And like the pit is not consensual. Like the pit is like throwing someone away. I think it's really interesting to experience that this is hard. It just is. I mean, Mm -hmm. Skinjacker is a problem. None of us here have come up with like a proper solution that abides by all of the tenets that that Nightcrawler is putting forward, right? Because it's difficult. You're dealing with this problem post-fact, right? Like, Krakoa didn't exist when he was born. So they weren't able to facilitate a society that was enriching and nourishing and and non-incelly. And so now they have this, like, sociopathic mutant who probably does have a lot of pain and hurt and and problems similar to empath and malice. Mm -hmm. But he's hurting people and you kind of have to, like, deal with that. But how? I don't know. I know that a lot of people were worried about this book being very cop-y. I figured it was going to lean into that tension and I'm really grateful for that. I don't feel that it's like copaganda. I feel like yeah. it's actually like pulling that tension in and saying, okay, we say like defund the police, but like, uh, what does that look like? And exactly. on Rocco, they have police and they're comfortable with it. Yeah, this was always my hope for this book, that it would encourage a conversation around what justice can look like when it's about community and building and healing and helping and when not when it's about like like vengeance you know the the justice that we know that we in the real world that we've seen in our systems are largely vengeance based and thinking that the punishment will be a deterrent for other people death row is like an example of like vengeance based feel good mm-hmm. politics and policy mm-hmm. and Absolutely. most of those people that evidence is at best shoddy like a lot mm-hmm. of those people are innocent based on the laws that we love to tout when you know drunk girls getting arrested by the cops in college it's innocent until proven guilty but then 
or like throw these people away but because it makes us feel good but it did not save that person's life it did not repair that family it didn't do anything besides give you like a a vengeance boner for a little bit and then we move on because it doesn't actually really matter just a quick plug for the innocence project a really wonderful legal advocacy project working with people who are incarcerated unjustly working to get them out people on death row people not on death row the innocence project is amazing also a quick plug for black and pink which is a prisoner advocacy program for lgbtqia people who are in the system and coming out of the system yes 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 and yes since this is a book where we're talking about the carceral system and justice as an ideal and not something that we all need to run around being afraid of these are organizations that are out in the world that are doing good work for people we had a really really tense conversation between david and his father charles xavier busy trying to out twink his own son walking around in his designer 35 year old body where david is like 28 he's like i'm still the old man i'm still the old man but charles said i'm the demon twink you can be whatever you want david paintbrush head but i am the demon twink of Krakoa. i do have to give it to jan bezel dua for doing something that references the legion hairstyle that you're just always going to have to do no matter what even if you change the character look for a bit it's always going to come back to that giving us a version of it that doesn't feel so like okay i've seen this a billion times i thought that was erg for a second he looks really cute i buy that you know he just has longer hair that kind of floats up and i like it a lot more than i mean i don't know some people do the the insane flat top really great and it's really fun but i have am very impressed that jam bezel do found a style that is unique and still gives us legion but does it in its own special and i love that the zorn twins have become kind of little more than accessories for him like i'm so worried they're gonna turn out to not be real like completely possible but they're such confusing characters anyways that like i i don't mind just having them as like window dressing and you know two big power-ups floating around him he kind of has like a a bit of a tetsuo vibe from akira which which would track because that's like another ultra powerful like super psychic but i also really like the zorn twins because they represent david checking himself mm-hmm. like between way of x and legion of x anytime xavier has come into the conversation and had to talk with his son i have just wanted to strangle the man because he's such a bad dad who refuses to see these like growth steps that david has been taking to stabilize himself to get to a point where he can give back to his community to check himself because he knows that he can lose control sometimes and he has a safeguard for that there's no acknowledgement of that progress there's no acknowledgement of that journey and there's something shitty about that but also very real and very i I think reflective of life because you can move out and go and be successful and have a career and blah 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 but when you go and visit home you kind of revert right back to who you were when you were 17 in your parents eyes i find it frustrating i agree with you but i think it's it's really maybe a little relatable like i just love that charles can't see his son as anything but that out of control boy who you know endangered the entire time stream at one time god like let it go already i mean i think this is where i have to step in and talk about shitty absentee fathers i mean as much as we want to and i had this problem with magneto when we started getting into the stuff with wanda where i was like for all this drama he was not really her father for a lot of the time like you really have to stretch your headcanon and very few appearances to even say that like as a 
young adult, he spent a lot of time being a father figure and helping to like adult raise her. But Charles was really not around for David at all as a kid, well into his adulthood. He was not a father figure. He showed up because it was a plot thing. And I think writers have done a very interesting job of playing around with them as father and son, of playing around with especially David's desire to live up to an ideal in his father's eyes and be something his father could be proud of. But at the end of the day, even if you want, there are perfectly justifiable reasons in continuity why Charles wasn't around, but he was not around. And for him to show up in random moments and pass judgment on somebody who he really, I mean, even as a person, it doesn't know that well, doesn't have that much to give. But then also like he never can take into account the fact that a big chunk of the reason why this things are the way that they are for David is because he did not have a, I don't even want to say proper family, but he didn't have people to raise and take care of him. And Charles would have been the person to do it with a kid with his kind of power. So I love what's happening here. And also I love that, like Arturo, I love the point that you made because I don't want this just to be an absentee father story. I want everybody to be able to read this and feel a reflective experience of what they have when they interact with their own families. I do just think like I see the reality of how non-present Charles was and how unwilling he is to own up to that. And it is a stacking list of sins that Charles is committing that really make me feel like not only is he unfit for leadership, but he's borderline unfit to be allowed on Krakoa. And I do feel that that will eventually come to a head. And I think it ought to. I think what's really fascinating about it is that people are taking control of their lives outside of Charles Xavier. We saw that in Inferno, right? We saw all of these people who were like, no, Charles, you won't just be in control. You won't impede me bringing my wife back. You know, for Juggernaut, it's like, you won't impede me from growing and being good to these people that have provided me family in various capacities, including a non-canon husband. Like, you won't prevent me from giving back. Or with Legion, it's like, I think so much of his, his parental turmoil is being the son of Charles Xavier and what that means in a more meta sense. But he is coming to recognize that he is Legion. He is an Omega level mutant. He has created the altar. He is making his mark without his father's like supervision or permission and without it being about solely about filling in the shoes of, of Charles Xavier. I mean, you could say the same for Scott. The very last issue of Hickman's run on X-Men is Scott talking to Kevin Feige, of all people, about how he once worshipped Charles as a god, but then he developed his own dream. And him starting that X-Men team is him creating his own dream separate from Charles. And I think it also speaks to kind of a, you know, almost like an archetypical kind of experience with, with one's parents that like when you're a kid, you know, for better or worse, there's a point where, you know, your parents are the authority. And there's a point where you realize that your parents are are people that they used to be kids and then they grew up and they're just doing their best. And But before you get to that point, there's a point where you rebel and like, you, like nothing your parents know is right. Everything is wrong. And if they say up, you say down. And, you know, and I, I feel like this is kind of mimicking, you know, David's arc with his dad. Developmentally, it's called differentiation. This idea yeah. that you grow up, you know, your values, your ideas, your lessons and cultures and socialization that you receive strongly aligns with the people who gave it to you until you get to a, a certain point in your growth and development where you start to step away and develop your own dreams and hopes and ideas and goals that don't align with the people who raised you. Anyone who 
who's not an egomaniac like Charles Xavier might might feel a little bit of bitterness, but ultimately might develop a sense of pride in seeing these capable people step away with their own dreams, their own ideas, their own resources for achieving them firmly in place and know that they contributed something to that. But Charles is who he is, and he has no no concept of how to take that without taking it as a blow to his entire vision for how things should be. Control is the way of Charles Xavier. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Like how like it would bother him to differentiate in that way because what does that mean for what he's for like for his project? The queer straight dynamic between David and Charles. Not that David is queer per se, but just that like his his role in the franchise and in stories, I feel like often mimics how a lot of like queer kids feel where they mm-hmm. are this like alien thing that is understood as like broken and troublesome and rebellious and problematic and yeah. needs to be tamed in some capacity and now now that he's done the internal work um although we keep seeing one of his personalities trying to break out but while he's doing that internal work he's coming to a sense of self that is like actually i don't need your approval i'm with somebody i love i'm serving my community if how mm-hmm. i do things or how i present without my shoes and whatever it bothers you then that's on you i'm not even that worried about the personality breaking out because mental health is not a straightforward journey very like, that the real question is are you going to get a writer who sees it that way and is willing to treat it as this is a mental health struggle not as legion quest 2 yeah i, I mean zeisberger's had such a such a, a unique and compelling window into the mind of david holler i get the sense that he's got a good story in him for how david can handle his next crisis speaking of crisis um here we are at the altar Skinjacker is back and he's possessed glob herman and is covering people in hot liquid paraffin I thought that was like so gross and then chamber does something that really i mean it, it bugged the hell out of me when i saw it and called it swat team mm-hmm. and disintegrated glob herman and i was glad that they immediately walked it back with nemesis being like well you fucked that one up you idiot and chamber's like oh shit because that's the only way that would that could possibly play out and like not break the book for me and break its conversation about enforcement and justice and you know the application of force because this was way over excessive it mimics a lot of police shootings where it's like this person is unwell in this case like glob is possessed and is out of control and instead of doing anything to diffuse situation and maybe whatever the metaphorical skin jacker is it's like oh well let's just shoot and i'm glad that dr nemesis was like well that's stupid and we did not solve the problem you just killed glob and now oh great you're possessed by the skin jacker i think with you know resurrections and whatever like the way that we treat death now in krakoa it like that's one of the upsides to it is that you can you can play on these themes a little more and it's not just like like you don't actually have to kill club herman to make this point right like he did but he's going to get better but yeah i I completely agree with you he was trying to be all you know gung-ho literally and just made everything so much worse it's like peak toxic masculinity the pairing of that and police brutality is apparent to me feeling like he's the hero he's the punisher feeling like he's captain save a hoe and like shooting people and i think the thing for me that really called attention to that was his announcing that he was SWAT team. I might not have really thought about it if it was just like a fight in the altar and Chamber shoots and and zaps Glob Herman and disintegrates him and feels bad about it. Like I thought that the dialogue that they gave him really pointed to what they were trying to do. And I think this book has done a really good good job of being able to show us mutants using their powers in a way that is technically violent, but is not like, let's beat somebody down and beat them into some 
submission. Even on the next page, Nightcrawler just like kicks Chamber in the face to try and stop him from blasting people. But it's not like an all out fight. It is not glamorized violence. Nightcrawler is using his teleportation ability and then getting one shot off and trying to neutralize the situation. We've seen Juggernaut do that. And the whole point is that these people aren't trying to win fights. They are trying to do as surgical a strike as they can to get people in a position where they can start to do spark stuff. And I think the book has done a really good job of showing that and giving us the kind of action and use of powers that we want to see in a comic book without ever making the violence so heavy and glamorized that it just becomes about who's winning the fight rather than the bigger issues that the book is talking about. And immediately we see Nightcrawler then do an active submission, right? He doesn't right. like gloat. He immediately sort of subjects himself to the skinjacker and sacrifices himself mm-hmm. for the uh, for protecting his community. Um, also to your point, the contrast between, and I know this was a point of contention before, like Juggernaut coming in in the first issue and like bulldozing his way in, and then in issue three, working with Pixie to help save her using that same power, that same violent to save Pixie is really beautiful. I think like just that, the, the parallels between that are exactly what you're saying, where it became more than just me, man, me punch stuff. It's like, no, me, man, me save friend and help solve mystery and go look at hot guys at the beach. And so we come to learn that the god is not just a straightforward regular god. He's a patchwork god, and his name is Tumult. And shout out to Seisberger for the fake out, because oh, yeah. everybody's expecting Loki. I mean, you know, the, the horns are, are pretty much a dead giveaway. It didn't take a whole lot of investigative work. And then seeing those fish meme, you know, brothers in arms or whatever, like, it, that felt very Loki. So I... I I did enjoy this little reveal. This was a, a, a nice surprise. Agreed. Well, I thought it was interesting that A, Aura Serrata seems to be behind the construction of this god who is constructed, and B, that he refers to himself as Patchwork, given mm. the fact that Onslaught was called the Patchwork Man for a while, and it makes me wonder if there isn't some underlying mechanism here for the creation of these, like, Ooh. super, these, like, god, these divinities that Aura Serrata has tapped into. I wonder if, I mean, we don't, actually have a full readout on how her power works but i wonder if she can kind of take parts of them but i wonder if orisa rada has been taking pieces of other gods to put them together in a patchwork um, versus actually just killing them in the way that we've been seeing because we also mm-hmm. saw that, that didn't work on uranus in x-men red number five. Oh yeah she got punched in the eye real hard yeah yeah you hate to see it <laughs> i mean <laughs> she certainly did to be fair she is a large floating eye i feel like like maybe there's some natural fortification that happens. Also, she's a jerk. She's yeah, a she's a real dick. dick. I mean, yeah, she's she's real fully dick. doing a whole conspiracy <laughs> right here and setting Zen up, possibly. Like I- this issue of X Men Red, a bunch of conspiracy people got really fucked up. I'm excited to see all of the fallout from these people who were trying to make big moves and just got their asses handed to them. Both Gillen and Spurrier have said that the effects of what happened 
happened on Arako in Legion of X will come into play. It just is going to take a minute. I would love to see Zen maybe step into, into the seat of law as somebody yeah. who can paint the truth. Like, mm. That would be cool. And I love that on the second page, we see her doing the same, you know, effect with her hands to Nightcrawler. To Nightcrawler, yeah. Like most notably, it was like, you know, early on in their hours long session, like, which kind of implies that whatever she saw, she liked even more. And we respect a multi, a multi round session. Go off this. <laughs> yep. I'm perpetually confused by this book. I'd be lying if I said I fully grasped how the altar works. I know it's been explained, but I'm still not clear if people are physically there or just mentally i'm not clear if it's like i know that it's a pocket reality i know you have to get there through you know it's it's complicated so having said all that i will say i'm really enjoying it and i love that if way of x began as an exploration of belief and and kind of uh maybe virtues right like but beliefs are around which to kind of organize your, your principles it feels like legion of x takes another step beyond that and is trying to take that belief and put it into practice in a way that is you know lawful in in like the purest sense of the word in a way that can kind of support and bolster a community jam bezel dua draws everybody really hot and that's difficult for me to deal with issue by issue. i don't even want to fuck the little danny devito guy at the beginning of the book but like the god every xavier juggernaut or a serrata come on yeah please do that uh, girl she's so sexy looking thick and good (laughs) really i'm just so impressed i love the art i mean i i want to talk about the story but honestly i'm too stupid to understand most of it so i'm just along for the ride tumult is really hot and i hope for a long journey for this character yeah i'm in agreement uh i'm always a fan of of hot of hot people hot (laughs) art i just i like smut so like this is this is legal but good still to what arturo was saying the movement from belief systems or lack thereof into practical applications i love that the altar operates as this like complex metaphysical entity that is like a collective consciousness space while also being like an actual like dimension and i love the conflict or the juxtaposition between iraqi law and krakoan law and how they're sorting that out i think anytime the books engage what does it mean to like have your your cousins from way back when your cousins from the hood showing up and and giving them a chance to thrive but also understanding that they have culture and perspective and it's valid and that you can learn from each other i think that's really important and as just like a nerd i i like these really complex questions of justice and metaphysics and and how to relate to one another Um, even when i'm confused by it i do still really appreciate this book a lot (laughs) 